Art Show, live every Wednesday around 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern. Haven't missed a Wednesday yet. I think we're on, I just done up the episodes, and we're getting close to three years coming up this spring. Three years that I've been doing this, so. Times we've gone live, and I'm sure I've answered every question at least once, but there's always a new spinoff, a new take, and a question a year ago might not be the same answer um, today. So I figure, carry on. Here we are. I don't have a topic for today other than in the last week, we've seen some crazy things going on in the stock market. We've seen everything from the GameStop and AMC, um, I guess, bull rush, you could call it, in stock price. We've seen real estate locally here in southwestern Ontario and Canada. We've seen it just exploding, not enough inventory. So there's just an extreme uh, pent up demand coupled with low interest rates, coupled with the fact that no one wants to sell right now. And then when things get hotter, people want to sell even less. They want to hold and wait till they you know, see things kind of flatten out a bit. So it's just, just wild. Um, a good ride for everyone who's invested right now in anything that's not fiat uh, base. So if you're in a crypto, if you're in a hard asset, like a, a commodity, like a gold or silver, like land, you know, real estate, uh, any stocks that tend to, to benefit from uh, the appreciation of, of printed money. So it's, uh, it's, it's a good time. I mean, the last few weeks have been, have been a fantastic start to the new year from a return on investment perspective. Those who are investing are doing very well. They are printing a lot of money. Hopefully the economy can catch up to all of the printing they're, they're doing so we don't go into a uh, inflationary, um, I guess a bubble, an inflationary bubble. Hopefully there's another shift for uh, our forecasting. And yeah, it's been on the personal front, I've been busy as ever with my 75 hard challenge, which I actually failed, I'm gonna be honest with you guys, failed the challenge. Uh, did do, I've been doing a workout every day, but couldn't keep up with the four liters of water a day. Couldn't keep up with the two workouts a day. I was doing, probably I'm averaging two workouts a day, but the, the other day I failed because I only did a, a 30 minute inside and a 30 minute outside. I was supposed to do 45 and 45, but just with kids and life being crazy, I just couldn't, couldn't find the time. It was like 1230 at night or one o'clock in the morning. I got a quick 30 minute workout in. So I was able to get, you know, most of the way there. And I, I am getting gains. I'm over 10 pounds of muscle heavier than I was on January 1st. So I've been getting stronger. I've been noticing like my arms are bigger. My chest is bigger. I'm stronger. I'm physically heavier and I'm feeling better. Um, I haven't been following the, the diet thing to a, a T, but I intermittent fast for those people who follow and know about intermittent fasting. I eat in a seven hour uh, window, right? So for 17 hours a day, I don't eat. Um, and I only drink water right now. I'm actually in my eating window. So I, I can drink anything or eat anything I want, but that's been something that I've been doing for about the last year and I've noticed some great health benefits. It's been keeping me lean. I have almost always have a, I have four to six pack. It's not always a six pack, but there's always a couple of abs showing uh, a couple of sets of abs. So I've, I've really found a lot of benefits from the intermittent fasting and it's been great. Financing wise, um, financially things have been going, you know, fantastic. So yeah, I mean, it's just been good overall. I'm watching some guy. I'm watching hand of God right now. It's a great show with, uh, Ron Perlman and he's fantastic. He's doing a great job. I watched him also in, um, oh, there was some show on there. It's about like a digital cryptocurrency. I'm trying to remember the name of the show, but he was good in that one too. And that's been a good show I've been watching lately. The shows, the shows were, um, there's almost like a, a motivational learning component to it, but you can also escape and have a, you know, 
a great time getting lost in the story. So that's what I really like. I like when it when there are parallels to real life, when there are parallels, you can learn things. So yeah. Um, first like, hey Mike, welcome on. How's the options learning? To be honest with you, I've got two courses I'm working on right now and um, I've not spent a lot of time digging into the material. I really have wanted to sit down and, and, and dive deep into some of the more advanced options trading strategies. I think going into this, I knew that I'd be probably um, short puts and, uh, and calls, like I'd be selling calls and selling um, puts. I'd be acting as the insurance guy as opposed to buying options, I'd be selling them. Investor that you know wants to protect their downside or you know um, ride some of that upside. I'd be the one that was selling that because I could collect some of that uh, high pop or high probability of profit um, extrinsic value. So going into all of this, that was sort of my plan. And um, yeah, I mean, you guys know I have a decent sized stock portfolio. Um, I didn't share the top 20, but I shared my top 20 dividend stock picks. And I think I'll be trading on some of those names where it makes sense, where I want to acquire more of the shares. I might as well get paid to do it and adjust my cost base down. Uh, that's what you can do by selling options is just adjust. Like let's say you want to buy a stock for 50, you can get it for like 45 by you know, selling an option, selling a put option on it, right? So that's the idea is get paid to buy stuff you want to buy anyway and uh, get paid and lower your cost base on stuff that um, you like long-term. So that's kind of how I, how I play it. And I don't like to bet against the market going up. Long-term, I think it goes up, especially on key players that I've got on my watch list that I think long-term have a lot of potential. So yeah, um, that's me. That's what I've been up to. And uh, kids are great. The dog's been fantastic. For those people following, we got a, a, a retriever poodle mix. It's a golden duel. And uh, he's been coming into himself the last year and a half or so. And he's He's really found his stride and um, that's been good too. So been really enjoying that as well. Okay, I'm gonna go to your guys' questions and, and answer whatever you guys have. You wanna learn how to fish. We fishing for uh, for bass or are we fishing for some tropical fish? There's, there's lots of different things you can fish for. Gail says, hi Mike, how's it going with you and the family? It's going well, thank you for asking. <laughs> Myron says, uh, GME, woo. I guess people are riding that to the moon. It's, uh, <laughs> I see another comment down here from uh, Chung. You gotta get into the GME train or we'll go to the moon without you. You know, I actually thought there was a, a little bit of undervalue um, upside in GME before all of this started, um, like way back. I think there was, it was beat up a little too hard during COVID, but the current price valuation, I think anyone who can afford to sell or can afford to, uh, to sell should. Um, anyone who has shares, I think if you don't want to lose your money, unless you want to like have fun uh, playing around with it, sure, like you're gambling at this point. But um, yeah, I mean, I think you should take your gains off the table. And if you've lost because you bought at the top, let's be honest here, I think that um, they don't have the, the, the prospects to be trading at five hundred dollars a share. Like, no, um, the underlying value fundamentals aren't there. So eventually, the world will, uh, the stock price will catch up to underlying value, regard, irregardless of what people are um, speculating on the stock. Short-term fluctuations, who knows, but long-term, I don't just don't see it. Uh, Boom Doom says, hey, just had a question. Do you think it's worth it to get foreclosure houses, especially in a high price market such as Vancouver or Toronto? What are the pros and cons of getting foreclosures? 
So in these markets like Toronto, Vancouver, in Canada, where there's just been a lot of heat in the last 10 years, there aren't a lot of foreclosures. Very, very few foreclosure properties. When you have appreciating markets, most of the time a lender or a family member or someone in the intermediate circle will step in and buy the lender out. In some cases, the lender will, and I know this is the new policy in Ontario, a lot of the A-tier lenders will force that it has to go on MLS for like three, four weeks and all offers date and make sure there's adequate exposure to the whole market. And so what you see is these foreclosure properties are getting good exposure uh, on the market to have. So that's what I've seen in foreclosure type scenarios. I've come in situations, one where two deals where I actually took down. I've been in lots of situations where people have been negotiating with me privately saying, Hey, the bank's about to take my house. Can you step in and you know buy for this price? This is my walk away. I don't care if I make anything. I just want the bank not to foreclose. Um, and in those situations, I was able to buy out the other mortgage and I bought the property for almost no profit for them. And that was a great opportunity for us. It came with a bit of risk, but I made a lot of money. Um, in the situations where I closed on a foreclosed property, I made sure that there was a lot of uh, upside for the risk because you don't know what you're getting into. There's no warranties, no guarantees. Oftentimes it's an as is, where is type thing. So you got to factor that in when you're buying. Um, but yeah, I've seen a lot of the lately in the big markets, they just throw it up on the, the MLS realtor service. All the realtors get in there with their clients. Everyone is looking for a fix and flip right now. So there's just so much heat and demand for these types of properties that people are, you know, novicely, or I don't want to say novicely, like they just don't know. I guess they just don't know how to, how to budget properly. They haven't done enough of these renovations to budget properly, or they rely on contractors who are undervaluing uh, how much things are going to cost to actually remediate these properties. And they're going in and saying, okay, it's gonna be a hundred thousand dollars to turn this place around. And they get into it and they realize it's 150. And they're like, geez, I overpaid 50,000 for this house. I thought I was gonna get more profit than I did. And so the pros make sure they have adequate, you know, margin there for their holding costs, adequate margin there for their, for their profit and their, you know, they go wrong. And so that's what I've seen when it comes to foreclosure houses. Um, I prefer to get in before the bank's involved because it's just a long process once the bank's involved with back and forth and try and get the deal done and just a lot of competition now on those lists. But if you can get in to those deals and those opportunities and there's only a few people you're competing against, it can make a lot of sense. I don't like to compete, it's just not my style. Um, in almost all the cases where I end up competing with people, I end up walking away because um, the guy who wins in a, in a multiple offer situation um, sometimes loses, right? So it just, it just depends. I mean, there are opportunities where I have bid against five or six people and still made a lot of money and done very well, but um, I try to avoid bidding situations. I try to buy, you know, through networks and through direct buyers, and then I'm not competing in the same way. That said, a lot of the wholesalers are also looking for off-market stuff, and there's a ton in that space now. It's so crowded that even if you find an off-market lead, there's five other people behind you chasing the same off-market lead, trying to sell it at retail value. And so it's just a, it's a confusing market. It's different than it was a few years ago, and there's still opportunities, but um, less so, I think, in the foreclosure space and in the off-market space than there was. Sebastian says, thanks for coming online tonight. Hey, no problem. Happy to do it. What's the second course? So uh, one of them that I'm taking is actually free and it's fantastic. Um, look up Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade is some fantastic options courses. It's very well laid out, online only course, great video, clear, like crisp quality, good um, written stuff. My friend Brandon actually found that and it's been, it's been a good one. I haven't really dug into it too much. I've got maybe a couple hours into the first few chapters, but it's been fantastic so far. 
and it's just laid things out really clearly. I like the way that they're that they approach things and the recommend the recommended uh, approaches and things like that. Just very clear. So check out if you want an intro to options trading, at least from a a basic understanding. They have a basic course, uh, Tasty Trade Offers. So Google that and you know you'll find it. It's great. Popping in live to say hi. Hope all is well. Hey, how you doing, Kaylee? D How to says greetings, Mr. Rosa. Greetings. Adam says any thoughts on Enbridge's three hundred percent plus payout ratio seems pretty unsustainable. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I like Enbridge as a, the thing that I like about Enbridge is that they can raise their prices at any time and pretty much all the customers in, like say in Ontario, we use Enbridge, it's Union Gas and Enbridge, I think merged or whatever. And all the houses here, like my sixplex, my duplex, whatever, all those gas meters, I have a fixed price that I have to pay from from Enbridge and Enbridge charges like a, a, a monthly fee for the meter being there. It's like 40 bucks a month, whether you use any gas at all. And then they're 40 bucks for like a surcharge delivery. And then they charge forever for the gas price. They have the flexibility to increase those fees um, within reason. And I think that because there's no other option, there's nothing else you can, you can't just turn the gas off, it heats the house, right? It fires up the stove, et cetera, so forth. Um, there's not a lot that I think because they have that monopoly, over the residential gas usage that gives them an edge that gives them a long-term ability to basically corner the market and and provide yeah a ton of positive cash flow uh, if they can keep their costs in line for the uh, uh for the dividend holder did you get the code no i didn't get the COVID vaccine what are your thoughts on buying condos outside the gta um, I've never been a big condo fan, to be honest. I think that, um, and sorry, I wanted to circle back. I didn't finish, um, with like talking about payout ratios. Um, it's important to remember that during these times, utility companies are actually quite attractive compared to the low interest rate environment we're seeing in the banking space, like the bond yields. It's just not great for people where do you put your capital right and so i think people are investors specifically are we're looking to alternatives to place their capital and because interest rates are so low right now um, those other you know utility type plays are more attractive and by increasing dividend yields uh, payouts at least right now they can raise you know a significant amount of capital and keep their stock price up so i think it's it's overall smart um is it sustainable there might be a cut in the future and maybe plan for that it's, it's possible depends on how they're able to um, yeah, we got to see. They've got a decent set of um, GTA. I'm not a big fan of condos myself, personally. Um, I bought a few condos in London where it's made sense, where it's been undervalued. But I find that not having control over how maintenance is executed, how snow removal and grass and all of that is done, I just don't like having no control. I don't like that the board can say, hey, it's $200 a month condo fee. Now it's $300 a month. Now it's $500 a month. And that, that stuff happens all the time. Hey, we got to raise our reserve funds. Everyone's got to put up $10,000. We're doing new windows. And they can just force everyone to pay $10,000 if they want to. And so I don't like not being in control. That's a disadvantage of owning a condo. Um, your profit from cash flow is less as well. So you're with condo investing, you're often speculating more than you're um, buying for you know, cash flow. So that's uh, it goes against some of my fundamentals when I'm buying real estate. I like it to uh, be a cash flow vehicle and then appreciation be a bonus. But yeah, I think that depending on where you're looking, 
sometimes the condos outside of the GTA appreciate slower than the detached properties. And so you're signing up for less appreciation and less cash flow. But on the other side of it, condos can be less stress. You're not dealing with snow and grass and you know potentially um, anything exterior on the property like windows or siding or roof. And so those are all covered by the, the general building condo fee. And so there's, there's some advantages to not having to worry about that stuff. And so, I mean, pros and cons, you gotta think about that. And sometimes the condo corps have certain rules, like no Airbnb, out of nowhere they'll decide, the residents will say, hey, no Airbnb, boom, now it's no Airbnb. Or no students, I've seen that as well, no students, oh, okay, there goes that idea. They control what you can do with no pets. You know, and, and actually condo rules supersede the landlord tenant board um, rules of the RTA. And so they can actually demand no pets and that holds up. So there's, there's things there in condos where you just have less control. That can be an advantage too. I know people that uh, get into the freehold, small little condo corps of like four people together or like on a little freehold townhouses get together and make a little condo corporation and they decide like the rental licenses don't apply. So in that city, there's no rental licensing at all. Uh, like in London, if you own a freehold townhouse, no rental licenses apply, no fire inspections. Uh, the city doesn't, they leave you alone. And so not having rental license inspections and property standards annoying you, that's a huge boon to your overall strategy. So it can make sense sometimes because you don't have the city breathing down your neck and a rental licensing program. You just have a condo uh, corp to deal with. So pros and cons um, with condos, but generally, generally there's less return on investment from a cash flow perspective. And depending on the market, from an appreciation perspective. But one of the advantages in condo investing is if there's a you know several condo units up or horizontally, depending on how the condo set up, could be a bunch of townhouse condos. Uh, once you get some, once you get one or two really high comps that sell in the, in the neighborhood, the price is set. And so sometimes that means like, I've seen condos sometimes where there's all the houses around it are trading are up 20% year over year. And the condo hasn't changed price at all, it's flat. And I'm like, oh, there's an opportunity there to buy because there's no good condo comps right now. But I get in there, fix one up, or buy two or three, fix them up, and then I can create my own comps in that condo complex. And that's huge. Once a couple of comps have been there, you'll see values jump like crazy in the condo space. And so we saw in 2019, there's some lagging condo sales that hadn't caught up to the rest of the detached market in London. And there were opportunities where I saw condo prices jump 20% over a three month period. A few comps started to, to jump up and then once you had a comparable property, another comparable uh, property in that complex sell, you know, for 50,000 more, and now that's the new, the new price. And so that's sort of an interesting model you could play into, maybe if you're looking at trying to arbitrage price. But um, overall, I don't like condos as much as I like detached buildings. I like to control my land. I like to own my land and do whatever I want on my land within reason. With condos, you don't really own the land, right? The condo court decides what you do with your land. Gail says, hi Mike, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on GameStop stocks and what took place with them in the market. Well, <laughs> Gail, I don't pretend to have an expert working knowledge, but basically Wall Street Bets on Reddit um, has a large following of you know millions of people. And a few key people decided that, uh, or realized or uncovered that several of the uh, large hedge funds were shorting um, we're shorting, uh, what do you call it? 
sorry, I just got a text coming. I was reading off my screen. Um, we're shorting GameStop and they discovered that there was so much shorting going on that if they were called for all to buy back all those shares off the open market, that there was like 140% or something needed of the uh, shares that are actually available. And so they had overshorted the stock. And I guess Wall Street Bets decided to, a few people, a few key people on that platform on Reddit decided, and a few other places on social media caught on as well, uh, decided that it would make sense to squeeze the shorts. That's called a short squeeze. And everyone just started buying all the available shares, knowing that the hedge funds were going to have to be called on their short to buy the shares at set date, call it in a few weeks. Um, call it like, well, some of them are expiring now. And saying, hey, like we can just jump the price up and they have to buy these shares off us. They have, they're contractually obligated to buy back these shares. That's how short works, right? Like uh, the way when you short a stock, you basically would, would borrow a stock from the bank, sell it, and then hope to buy it back at a lower price later. And so they owed, you know, on margin, all of these shares back. And they were doing it like 20 bucks or 30 bucks or whatever the price was they were shorting at. In some cases, even probably $10, right? And now they had to buy them back. And so everyone was, was bidding up the price and they had to buy them back at 100, 150, 200, 300, whatever. So they were just trying to squeeze the hedge funds. And that was the play there, basically. It was a short-term speculative play. I don't think anyone was actually, uh, in, their, in their mind, believed that there was underlying value at 300 or $400 a share for GameStop. But they were just trying to stick it to, the, to Wall Street, stick it to the hedge funds. And they burned the hedge funds. They, like some hedge funds lost like 50%. Uh, billions were lost in the process. So it was a, a win for the DIY investor, for the small town guy who was like, hey, let's stick it to Wall Street. We can hold, the, the saying going around social media was, we can hold longer than you can stay solvent. And so it was a, the, showing for the first time in history that DIY investors, and this is where it's kind of the implication of this, one thing we'll talk about in investing in general, is the power now of the DIY investor, um, which by the way, is completely irrational in many cases. Um, so the idea is that um, these folks who have no basic understanding of the stock market at all, in many cases, no understanding of what a balance sheet is or how to read an income statement, retained earnings, none of that. Um, no, no idea about how to read an analyst report or forecast. They just like watch a video, they're like that makes sense. I hate Wall Street. I wanna make money. I'm gonna put my $2,000 stimulus check into GameStop all in on red, right? That's a lot of what was going on, right? And then it caught on, so the people jumped in, and I'm sure there's people buying a million dollars in GameStop. Um, I, I don't know, there, there's probably people buying a lot of it too, right? Just to get caught up in the frenzy. Once that starts, then you get a, all the speculators jumping in, right? Just wanting to speculate and bet and play and have fun. And uh, so all the speculators got in there and, and drove things up, and then we saw exactly what I thought would happen. Um, we saw some highs well into the 300s, and then we saw, you know, a crashing less than 100 bucks a share right now. I haven't been following it in depth because, again, I didn't trade on it. I had some friends who were trading options on it, and uh, it was crazy some of the spread trades you could set up. So you could you could uh, do a call and a put and live within the spread, and it was like anything from like $20 a share to like $200 a share, um, you made, you made money. So as long as this, this stock stayed somewhere in that band, you could make so much money. And the extrinsic value um, or EV premiums on some of these options contracts was ju were just crazy. So some of the people selling options were making boatloads and they were covering their, their downside by selling a call and a put, right? Just in case things went crazy. 
And so there's no no way to lose majorly. You just make a lot off the speculators who are speculating, doing what they always do. And I mean, let's not get pretend that like Wall Street hasn't been speculating forever and that like there haven't been people speculating since the beginning of time. Look at the Dutch tulip, right? People go crazy for things that make no sense sometimes. But it's interesting now that the DIY investor has power where they didn't before. There's actually a large amount of capital that they can move the market, they can move the price of a stock. And, and often, you know, market irrationality is starting to play in. Like we used to believe in business school, we're taught that, you know, markets are efficient and that, you know, when new information comes out, it becomes priced into the stock and everything's been priced in, blah, blah, stuff. And that underlying fundamentals are all, you know, within reason priced in. And that's not the case when you have DIY investors who don't understand the fundamentals. They literally couldn't read a balance sheet or an income statement or cash flow statement. Couldn't couldn't understand the ratios behind a company. They don't understand even what a PE ratio is. And yet they've got thousands or tens of thousands, tens of thousands of dollars invested in something because they like GameStop. They've been in the store. Like just crazy things going on right now where um, old theories for valuing companies um, aren't necessarily as good as they used to be, right? Trading metrics don't work the same way they used to. And so we have to adapt and say, okay, now it's more about what's the market psychology. And so it's crazy. You can, you can actually play into what's going on in the, in the social media feeds. That has more of an effect. Like Elon Musk could tweet something like GameStonk or like whatever, whatever, just some stupid word that could mean one thing or another. Like anyone can interpret it how they want and could blast the, you know, the share price up. Whereas that didn't happen before. Like we didn't have that 10 years ago. One person couldn't go on and say, you know, whatever, like Apple, boom, Apple goes up 30%. Just it didn't work that way, right? So it's just, it's wild how inefficient, I think the markets are more inefficient and more volatile now than ever before. Uh, so what you'll see is when there's a bit of news, things go are more exaggerated. The highs are even higher and the lows are even lower. And so that's something that, you know, if you're trading options, that could be in your, the volatility could be in your best interest. So that's something to look into. Um, and if you're, you know, buying stuff that you like, long-term fundamentals catch up. Like, I don't care how much you love GameStop. If retail dies and brick and mortar is dead and they have no profit for three years in a row, they'll go bankrupt. doesn't matter if you love GameStop to the moon. If the company fails and the fundamentals aren't good, they don't have positive cash flow, they don't have any revenue and they're eating losses, you can only raise capital for so long. Eventually things catch up, right? Like people realize, okay, GameStop's not solid, right? Or whatever, I mean, I it's a fine company. I don't think it'll go bankrupt, but uh, it's just overvalued. And that's there's a lot of things that are overvalued. I think, honestly, Tesla, to be honest, I think is a bit overvalued right now. I mean, people are, maybe in two, three years, it'll grow and it'll catch up. But I think right now, based on profitability, you know, trading to earnings now, it's overpriced. And some people will compare it and say, oh, you know, compared to, to Square, compared to whatever other tech company, Tesla's priced well. And I'm like, well, they're overvalued too. Um, I feel the same way. I was watching actually um, podcast with Meet Kevin and uh, Peter Schiff. And I think a lot of what Peter says is solid. Some of what he says is kind of like, eh, I don't agree with everything he says. And some of what he says, the logic doesn't follow. But some of the things that he says are pretty solid. And I like listening to him talk. I think he um, he's a bit bearish, but I like to hear some of his, his lines of thought and his arguments. He's well-spoken. I will say that much. Uh, next question is, 
Do you find any fix and flip deals if people bring them, bring a solid team and the deal? Sebastian, yes, I do. Um, I, I funded fix and flip deals before, especially in my local market. Um, bring them to me. You know, I'm, I'm an open dragon willing to be pitched on any business or any real estate deal, whatever. I have capital and I'm happy to put it to work and I like to, to fund great deals and great people. So I'm more interested in the person than I am um, the deal, but the deal has to be good too. Mike says GME over, so that's GameStop, over uh, efficient market hypothesis. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, late, but I'm here, Will says. Appreciate you doing these live shows, Mike. Hey, no problem. Happy to do it. Ghost, uh, Ghost Recon artist then says uh, markets aren't efficient. This is true. Um, we're seeing that time and time again that markets are not efficient. It's crazy that some investors subscribe to the idea that markets are efficient. They just aren't. Boom Doom says, thanks for the response, but also wanted to ask, I'm still young, under the age of 18. How should I approach getting into real estate? I still need to learn a lot, but how do I get into it? Good question. Um, you know, I think that a big piece of learning real estate and just getting involved is starting by consuming all the content you can on that space and then by practicing in that space in some way. So whether that means volunteering for someone in the space, say you find a realtor, work under them, um, say you find um, a property manager, maybe you could help them out, take listing photos or something. The hardest parts of real estate investing are learning the art of the deal, uh, learning the financing piece, which again, isn't really important until you, you know, are at that space. Uh, and then I think the, the toughest part, but easy to learn, is uh, the property management piece. So placing tenants, actually very hard to do well and properly. It's a lot of work actually um, to place tenants properly. And you know, good property management, creating systems that are less of your time. As an example, um, one system that what we've implemented is when a tenant moves in, we give them a, a standard list of all the things like where the water shot off is, um, where the electrical panel is, what to do if this happens, if this happens, if this happens, a union gas or Enbridge number to call if there's a gas leak, here's you to call if there's a water leak, how to shut it off at the city. Before you call me, call this person because that's all I'm gonna do is, so that I have an example, if water leak, go to main shut off, shut it off of the building. Here it is, here's the instruction on how to turn it off. And that stops any major water leak issue quickly. And then I give three contractors for plumbing, three gas contractors, three electricians, and then I have three handymen. I'm like, here's the first person you call. If it's under $500, I automatically authorize you to call them and fix this emergency repair. If it is not an emergency, then feel free to reach out to me and them, CC me by email. Don't call, we don't do phone calls. We do email, we have a standard operating procedure so I can forward that email to the right contractor. The idea is that most events shouldn't involve the landlord or owner. Tenants are smart enough to solve problems on their own if you give them and enable them with the tools to do that. And so I'm a big, big fan of implementing systems and um, don't waste your, a lot of people waste their time and uh, your time is your most valuable asset. And so I think you should try to find ways to get things done more efficiently and quickly. And that's how you should approach real estate. In the same way you're trying to acquire a deal or set up your first property management systems, um, look at it in that in that respect. So yeah, find someone who can mentor you. That's that's really the place and add some value to their life in some way. So the only way they're gonna to wanna to teach you is unless you're paying them to teach you and you obviously pay for one of those coaching programs or something. But I think there's more value when you're first getting started in just volunteering your time or giving some value 
in some way, and then hopefully they'll provide you value back. And that's the idea is you trade value. Okay, Sebastian, if you want to connect with me, it would be on, uh, you know, by email, uh, in my description link, or on uh, Instagram at Mike Rosart is a great place to get hold of me. Uh, Axel says, hey Mike, are there any other strategies besides the bird that you recommend to grow wealth in real estate? By the way, I learned about the bird from you. Awesome, Axel. Happy that you're able to find that video. It's one of my better videos, I think, laid out than some of my live streams, which are not laid out so well. We just go rapid fire, right? But um, there are lots of real estate investing strategies. There's like the, the turnkey strategy, there's the student rental strategy, there's the uh, senior housing strategy, there's the Airbnb short-term rental strategy, uh, there's the medium-term executive rental strategy, there's the furnished rental strategy, uh, there's the flip strategy, the fix and flip strategy, there's of course the Burr strategy, there's um, lots of different ways to buy property add value to it and like there's like the build strategy where people buy property and, and tear it down rebuild it how they want it there's the buying the bungalow and duplexing it that was a strategy i did a lot of um, i called it the unit densification strategy so adding bedrooms adding bathrooms adding units to an existing space so an unfinished basement or a second large family room that's not being used which could put a wall up and make a bachelor apartment out of that giant you know living room addition that was 20 years old and was adding no value to the house so there's lots of ways you can get creative with utilizing the square footage better or adding square footage to the existing um, lot to create cash flow. So yeah, there's lots and lots of ways you can crank out more value, but that's all the strategies involve extracting some value from a property, except for the turnkey, even the turnkey, I guess, the turnkey strategy would require you just to extract cash flow and put very little inputs other than your capital, but you'd, uh, I guess by managing the property, you'd be adding some value and hopefully if you continue to manage it well, then you continue to get cash flow. There is nothing really turnkey about real estate. Even the most turnkey properties, a tenant changes over and then it's not turnkey anymore, right? So it's a myth. The turnkey property is really a myth. Um, why do you think that's happening now, the psychology of one person influencing the stock market? Referring to your comments to the GameStop question. Gail, I think, and uh, she said thanks for your time. So Gail, I think that um, the power of social media influencing our lives in a way that it didn't before. As an example, 10 years ago, I would turn on the TV and look on the news if I wanted to see what was going on. Now, if I wanna know what's going on in the world, I, I have like four key, five key influencers I watch on Instagram, on uh, Facebook, on Twitter. Those are the people that I look for. What's, like, I might go on, I rarely use Twitter, but like I might go on Instagram and follow a few key people to see what's actually going on in the world. I consume my news now from social media. And so the power is now on social media. The problem is there used to be expectations of journalism and professionalism and um, fact-checking before information was shared. And now key influencers just share whatever they want with their own spin on it. And that has bigger ramifications for like this new fake news era that we're in. Someone can say whatever they want and if people, enough, if they're followed by enough people and everyone shares that, that fake information can become common news. Like everyone believes it now. And so that's, that's where um, it's wild how much power social media has and how much change and impact it has. And so, yeah, I mean, we've always been this way. We've always been a, you know, humans like to overreact, I guess. It's, it's in our nature to overreact to whatever happens. So we hear a, a bit of news. Our first reaction is to like 
GameStop's jumping up. So everyone wants to inflate it, right? Or like the market's crashing, COVID, boom. Like if you like, I was sharing a last night on my Instagram feed, I was looking at previous posts and I saw a post I did last April. Last April in London, market was down 40% from where it is today. We were in 2018 pricing for about a month and a half, two months. And if you guys remember, I was on this stream, we were talking about real estate going down. I did an actual live stream on real estate going down. And people are like, wait, real estate's only gone up. That's not true. Last year in 2020, in April, real estate was down 20%. I sold the triplex for 545 grand. It's worth 750 right now in London. I even sold, and it was my JV partner that wanted to sell. Long story short, uh, I sold a couple of properties because they wanted to sell. There was other things at play. We were planning to sell anyway. Just the timing was bad. Um, I don't plan to try to time the market. I had no idea whether the market would go up or down or whatever, sideways. Who knows? The world was falling apart during COVID, if you remember. And credit was frozen. And as soon as credit markets freeze, real estate plummets. No one can borrow any money. It's all related on people borrowing, right? Um, so that's people talking about opportunity. And I hear people calling me now on Instagram and whatever. And even just people calling us for coaching calls saying, Mike, the market's so hot in London. It's been so hot in London for like four or five years. I can't get a deal. And I'm like, where were you in April and May in London, in Toronto, when markets were down to 2018 levels? In 2020, there was 2018 real estate pricing levels in Toronto, in London, et cetera. Um, for some of my friends that are watching and uh, where were you guys then? All the people who were saying looking for deals, well, they were hiding under a rock. Everyone was, we, we had no idea what this new COVID virus was all about. We were all in lockdowns. The world was free falling, credit markets were frozen. It was very hard to get new financing. Um, for that period of time, for those people who were bullish and who bought real estate in that time, I did. I actually bought three properties. I realized this. If you watch my stories and you watch my live streams, um, around May 1st, I realized this and I bought three properties. Um, after I'd sold a couple, I'm like, geez, the market is actually not competitive at all. There's there's zero competition on offers. I threw some stuff out there. I got some great deals last year in 2020. And now, like, the market's going crazy, right? So it's there's not a lot that I'm seeing. And I'm just sitting on the sidelines. I'm waiting because like, I'm not gonna compete. I'm just, I'm not there. It'd be a good time to sell right now. If you have any real estate, sell in London. It's markets on fire, um, on fire. Like we're literally up 10% from November already in four months. <laughs> like 500,000 houses are now 550. 600,000 houses are 660 already. Just a wild market that we're in. Um, but yeah, for those people who say that, and I'm, I'm, I hope George is watching because he's always saying, oh, everything's overpriced. But where were you when there was the dip? You were afraid under a rock. That's the truth. You could have jumped on the opportunity. And that's what all the people who are out there who are, you know, are complaining that prices are high. There's always a time to buy. And it's just, you've got to be confident when that time comes, when no one else is confident. Next question here. Um, what do you think about cryptocurrency after seeing that market manipulation is so blatant? Uh, Jordan, good question. I believe that... I wrote an article on my blog in 2017, I think, when Bitcoin was at its all-time high of 20,000 Canadian. At the time, that was crazy. And back then, it hadn't reached proof of proof of stake in the same way that it has today. Like there wasn't huge adoption. It was hard to sell your coin. It was slow. Um, it's almost four years ago. Jeez. Um, I watched it go from like 5,000 to 20,000, then back down to like 3,000. And uh, at the time I wrote the article, my thoughts were that it won't be adopted by the mainstream. I didn't think that it had the 
I like the technology of blockchain. I like, um, so there is some intrinsic value in cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, et cetera. There are use cases where it makes sense, but I think it's just as easy as, you know, MySpace switching over to Facebook, right? Or to, I guess it was MySpace to MSN Messenger to Facebook. Companies like, no one uses MSN, no one uses MySpace, it died, right? So something else better could come along and wipe it out. And so it has no inherent utility value if a better technology comes around and wipes it out. So that's one of the risk factors, I suppose. Um, another is like, is there actually a need for it? If the governments came, like the central banks um, came together and decided that instead of the petrodollar, the US dollar being the, the, uh, the main uh, currency of the world, that we moved away from the petrodollar. And I don't think we're like, you know, guys like Peter Schiff think we're gonna go back to the gold standard. I don't think we are. I think we're gonna move towards some new digital cryptocurrency backed by, and I mean, it, it could be decentralized in some ways, but I think it's gonna to have to have some backing by all of the countries. So like the G20 are gonna to get together and all back some sort of global currency, which allows us to trade uh, in between each other without having to switch between currencies. I think that's the future of where we're going. I think it's more likely they'll create their own than it is that they're gonna all back Bitcoin. And if they back Bitcoin, it changes Bitcoin as well, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, they, they can already track a lot of the transactions. Like every time you buy and sell Bitcoin, they know about it, you gotta declare any taxes. Um, they're watching all the wallets. So it's not, some of the lure people are pitching about Bitcoin, whatever. Um, I think the only real value in cryptocurrency like Bitcoin is that like all other hard assets out there and commodities, it is a store of value. So like there's some, there is something there like buying gold or silver, or buying land or something tangible, physical that regardless of how much money they print or how the economy performs, um, it has its own intrinsic value regardless of what the, the US dollar is trading at, right? So there is some value there in being out of fiat, but I think people are misunderstanding getting out of fiat for how do I put this? Like, it's all about public perception with Bitcoin. Like, it's all about the belief in it having value. If tomorrow people decide it doesn't have value, like let's say tomorrow I decide that 20 Bitcoin isn't enough for a Tesla. Like let's say I have a Tesla, I wanna sell it and I don't wanna, and everyone starts agreeing that, hey, yeah, it doesn't have value. It all of a sudden doesn't have value. And Bitcoin in and of itself has no cash flow. It's not a business. You're not investing in anything, any earnings. Your only way to make money, right? And the only reason you ever buy Bitcoin, by the way, is to make money, right? The goal is that you can sell it to someone else for more than you bought it for, or why else would you buy it? Um, you wanna be able to trade it for something else more valuable. And so it's the greater fool idea in that you have to basically find someone to buy your Bitcoin from you or whatever crypto you're buying for more than what you bought it for. And that's the only out. When I buy land, I can rent it out to a farmer, continue to own it, and get all my money back through cash flow. Uh, if I have a rental property, I can rent the building out. People will live there, and they'll pay me as a landlord for owning that that thing. If I, if I have a digital cryptocurrency, I have nothing. It has no, there's no, I can't use it for anything. It can't generate any money for me. I could lend it to someone for liquidity. That's the only way you can really kind of cash flow crypto is you could you can do some, some cool lending stuff with it. But that's just like holding fiat and, and lending fiat. So it's not really, I don't know, it isn't, it isn't something that can 
that could generate cash flow. And so that's what I don't like about it. But I could see it being in someone's portfolio, uh, same as gold or silver. So I don't know. I'm not as bearish as I was. There's about 15,000 nodes, um, computer nodes in the Bitcoin network, all processing um, like codes of hash or whatever, lines of hash or whatever. There's a, there's a value in that huge network. So there is intrinsic value. I think Bitcoin's a little bit overvalued right now based on just looking at that. I'm not a speculator, so I can't pretend to know if everyone will adopt it. Um, I can't pretend to know if Elon will, will push all his Tesla cash into that or um, if he can use his army of followers to drive the price up. I don't know. I'm not a speculator. And maybe he can. Maybe it will go 100,000. Maybe it'll go 200,000 a coin. I don't know. But um, it could just as well go to 3,000 a coin. And that's what scares me. The risk. Next question is, I've heard of posting a ghost rental listing to see how much demand there would be for a potential rental. Should I do this? What other ways are there to find out how much a place could rent for? Well, Topongo, um, the way that I look for what someone will rent for is I go onto the marketplace on Kijiji and on Facebook and I look at other listings and you can see what listings are popping up fresh. You can see older listings and you're just gonna feel from all the listings on the market what places are renting for. And you can watch listings over a period of time and see if they lower the price or see if they go rented and they disappear. Then you'll know, hey, I'm tracking, you know, for one bedrooms, I'm tracking 20 ads and you see which ones drop their price, which ones the ads disappear. Often when the ads are disappearing, it's because they rented the place out. You could even message that person and say, hey, is this still available uh, to rent out? And they might say, no, it's rented. Boom, now you know that it rents at that price. But yeah, you could post a ghost ad. It's a bit unethical, I guess, because people are wasting their time messaging you. Um, but I, I suppose you could do that to try to find out what demand there is for said property. And it's all about the pictures too. Like I've had people post the exact same unit with a different lead thumbnail and get like a thousand responses versus a hundred responses. The exact same ad, exact same description, slightly different title, different thumbnail picture. So it's crazy how much power marketing has, especially this day and age where we have no attention span. So we're flipping through Facebook, looking at ads and like we're looking at the shiny object syndrome. And so it's, all about marketing this day and age. So if you're not good at marketing, it can be difficult to rent units out. Uh, Varun says, hey Mike, do you do rent increases if the tenant is really good? Varun, sometimes not. Um, there are a couple cases where I haven't done rent increases because the tenant is great. And I think it's more valuable to have it. Let's remember that when a tenant moves out, you gotta often touch up paint, you have to fix things, you got vacancy probably for a month at least. Uh, it's very hard to line up a tenant when they move out on the first and new tenant moves in. On the same time, it's very hard to get the unit turned over. So you often have a month of vacancy, which is 10% of your annual, almost 10% of your annual rent roll, right? It's like a little over 8%. So it's something that, um, there's a lot of cost to have a tenant leave. And so if often what the way I'll phrase it is, hey, I'm raising your rent, the 2% or whatever uh, for inflation or whatever the inflation guideline, I think for COVID we can't increase rents at all. It's actually frozen. But um, normally you'd increase it by the, the rent guideline. And uh, often I'll give them a discount equivalent to that. So I'll say, hey, your rent was a thousand. Now it's thousand twenty-five or whatever the two and a half percent increase. Let's say it's a thousand twenty-five, but I'm giving you a twenty twenty dollar discount or twenty-five dollar discount every month. And so your rent is effectively, you know, the same, but your rent has increased technically. And I'm going to offer you, you know, I'll e-transfer you back every month so that you're getting a credit. And that way the rent is still growing with inflation but they're paying the same. 
So that's a good way to do it to keep your rent up so that you know five, 10 years from now, you're not stuck with a super low rent. So raise your rent, but then give them a discount every month in cash or by e-transfer or whatever. And that's the way to do it. Um, respect your tenants that are solid, good. You want them to stay. Turnover is really expensive. I want my good tenants to stay. I don't want people leaving. It's a lot of money to place a new tenant. It costs a month's rent or half a month's rent, let's say. A lot of people have half a month's rent to place a tenant. So if you're a $1,000 unit, that's 500 bucks in manpower to get, you know, it depends if you have, I guess if you already have pictures and videos, if you already fixed, it depends on the condition of the unit, but it could cost anywhere from 500 to a couple thousand dollars to get a unit turned over and ready. Um, get spent on materials, et cetera, and so forth to get it ready and all the time to show it and post the ads and whatever. That's a lot of investment to change out a tenant when you have a perfectly good tenant there and maybe you just don't offend them by raising their rent and you can keep them and that saves you thousands of dollars more than the rent increases. So I don't always increase rent. Sometimes I keep it the same. Um, but I do that by effectively giving a discount as opposed to giving no increase at all. Hey Mike, any general advice on lending and borrowing to and from family to fund real estate deals? Um, interest standards, payment terms. Cheers, man. Thanks for your time. Uh, Christopher, happy to help. Uh, generally, you want to pay your family for lending you money. Like no one should lend you the money for nothing. You should try to stick to whatever terms they're looking for. So maybe they want to lend it to you for six months or maybe they want you to be able to recall it in 60 days, whatever. Um, stick to your, to your word. It's tough getting a business with family. It can be very dirty if you can't pay them back. It can destroy family and friendships. I've been there. I've lent to family and it's not, it's not ideal. Um, Rate-wise, it depends. Like if your parents are borrowing from a home equity line of credit at 3%, they might be okay charging you 8% and making a 5% spread. Um, if your parents are borrowing it on a private mortgage at 10%, that you might have to pay them 12 to make it worth their while, right? So it's, it's, uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's, uh, it depends on the situation. It's hard to give a, an exact um, number and it depends on what they're lending against. Like maybe, maybe they lend you for zero, but you're hooking them up at the place to stay as an example, maybe you buy a triplex and one of your family members stays in the triplex and they lend you money to close the deal. And as a result, you give them a super discounted rent and they, there's no interest charge, right? So you get super creative with how you do your lending between family, or maybe you give them a piece of the equity when it sells. So there's lots of ways you can do things, but just be generous and be fair. You want to establish long-term relationships and they're family. So don't screw your family. That's not cool. Okay. Hit the like button, everyone. Thanks to how to appreciate that. Mel Baz says, mom of three under the age of seven. I have three rental properties, but I'm hoping to quit my job to be with my kids. I plan on renting my basement to replace some income. Any other recommendations, private lending? Um, well, Mel, if you have, you know, some money set aside that you can refinance from your rental properties, yeah, options trading or private lending could make good sense. I'm about to have a third child and they'll be all under five or five and under. It's stressful. I can't imagine, you know, if I was a single parent and just, just trying to manage all the rental properties and things would be, would be tough. So kudos um, to doing that. It's, um, I just try to get through the days most of the time. Sometimes it's just so stressful. So it, yeah, I mean, lending is not very stressful, which is great, but property management can be very stressful. Bringing your kids to your rental properties and teaching them could be a big um, growth in their mindset and help them later on in life. So there's some inherent benefits there. I think you're saying your, your kids up to see you succeed, which helps them succeed. 
they learn from from you and so that's that's awesome by the way but yeah private lending can be fantastic if you had a you know 100 grand that you could lend out at say you know one percent a month or something to a flipper then that's a what is that uh, almost it's a thousand bucks a month so you get a thousand bucks a month coming in if you rent out your basement maybe there's another thousand fifteen hundred bucks coming in boom there's twenty five hundred bucks coming in that you didn't have before so you'd be surprised how far you can you can go by tweaking a few levers and all of a sudden you're at least a version of financially independent and maybe you you still you're at home with your kids but maybe you're still working on your entrepreneurial ventures to earn a bit more money can't remember why i subscribed you'd be a pretty cool dude <laughs> nikki thanks appreciate that man that's awesome d how says i remember if i remember correctly home prices dropped a little in the u.s around february as well i think it was either 2018 or 2019. Yeah, I mean, during COVID, I'm sure there was a pullback around the board. There was lots of, even if markets weren't slipping in price, there was a lot less competition. Everyone was afraid. Offers were being pulled out on. Um, it was just a crazy time. So that's the time to to go all in, right? Uh, as person says, I'm a 15-year-old. Any advice you give me to reach my dream of financial freedom? Start working hard now. Every dollar you can earn now, even if it's like you're making 10 bucks an hour working somewhere, every dollar you earn now at 15 is 25 times when you're 65. So just remember, if you can save 100 grand now, that's over two and a half million? Yeah, over two and a half million on the lowest side, right? So it's crazy how fast and how hard money rolls on itself. You have time on your side. And so be smart with growing yourself investing in yourself mentally and then start building on savings start investing now because money will just compound so many times over i'm i was fortunate to also start young and the gains and the compounding mean that because i worked so hard when i was you know 16 17 18 19 20 21 all the way to like now um when i'm 50 i'll have so many multiple factors on all of that growth that it's like a the way i think of it is like when you're young imagine if you could push a snowball up a hill and then it just starts rolling and once it starts rolling and starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger eventually it's so big no one can stop it like you could you could literally fall in your own face and try to stop the snowball but you can't that's how it is with with building wealth like it gets to a point where and i'm getting close to this now where my investments are growing so fast i could never even spend the growth so i can You'll, you'll never be in a position where you're not financially free because your snowball is rolling so fast down the hill, you can't stop it. The risk factors to look out for are lifestyle inflation. You make that first bit of money and then you buy the car or the, the fancy car, or you go on the fancy trips or you take the year off and you, and not there's anything wrong with doing those things, by the way. Some people grow in amazing ways doing that kind of stuff. But those opportunity costs are huge when you're young. A four-year degree, of, like say you take four years and go to school and don't work full-time for those four years, that costs you millions of dollars by the time you're 65. A four-year degree costs you four million bucks by retirement. If you just instead worked a $50,000 year job, saved and invested that and let it compound over the time. It's crazy how little movements now have so much impact later on. And so every movement you make now Every time you take a positive step into bettering yourself or growing your knowledge or even saving a little bit of money, even if it's 20 bucks, whatever, uh, that'll have compounding effects later in your life. And so you're so blessed to have started on this journey now at 15. That's fantastic. 
room, no problem, happy to help. And last question, super happy to hear how you manage and treat good tenants. That's what we do after our realtor told us about raising rent and discounting. Yeah, exactly what you wanna do. So awesome, we got through all the questions. It's been over an hour, I'm past eight o'clock. I gotta run upstairs and do my kids' bedtime. Thank you all so much for watching. I appreciate you jumping on. Um, if I missed any of your questions by chance, and I didn't get to it, post it in the comments after this is uh, on the replay and I'll go back in and I'll answer it publicly for everyone and for yourself for the benefit of everyone. So thank you all so much for watching. The secret to unlocking it well through you is to spend less, earn more, and maximize returns on the difference. Those are the three levers hit to play with that'll build your financial future and grow your wallet and your uh, basically allow you to have the financial freedom that you want to enjoy the life that you're meant to live. So thank you all so much for watching. I appreciate it. It's been, uh, we're coming up on 150 episodes of live stream. I want to go back and number each and every one, but that's such a task just to go back and find each stream and number them. But it'd be cool to actually get like a playlist going and have this like a, like a micro search show playlist and it's something I want to do. So if anyone wants to volunteer to go ahead and label them all for me, um, reach out on Instagram. That's something I want to do, but I just haven't got around to it. Thank you all so much for watching and I'll see you next week and on Instagram, Mike Rosehart. And if you're watching the replay, just know I appreciate you. Smash that like button and I'll see you in the comments. Have a good Wednesday, everyone.